Deep down, we all know it's not really a matter of if, but when. At some point, the conflict between ascending LGBTQ rights on the one hand and the rights of religious communities with traditional views of marriage and gender on the other are on a collision course. The question is whether it's a zero-sum conflict. If gay rights were to be protected by new federal legislation in the workplace, in housing, and in public accommodation for the 40% or so of America that's not yet covered by SOGI-type non-discrimination state law, does that mean our churches, synagogues, and mosques would somehow lose? Or if faith groups got expanded federal protections to stay true to their convictions about marriage and sex, with congregations teaching these beliefs, do LGBTQ Americans lose? The answer is not necessarily at least according to today's podcast guests. Shirley Hoekstra is a former attorney and former college dean, and she's now president of the Evangelical Council of Christian Colleges and Universities. Tyler Deaton is a graduate of one of those campuses, Wheaton College, and today he's a senior advisor to the American Unity Fund, a conservative gay rights lobbying firm here in Washington, D.C. The two met several years ago alongside other religious leaders who wanted to get ahead of this issue in our polarized era. As Shirley describes, it is possible to work upwards from real problems on the ground toward better laws. Her journey started with listening and hearing that deep down, both sides are afraid of being extinguished by the other. Shirley's been helping a coalition of 140 evangelical campuses from diverse parts of the country to get not compromise, but as she says, negotiated results we can all fully live with. That's a tough slog, though, when there's such deep suspicion on both sides. Many on the cultural left think traditional religious believers want a license to discriminate, or that evangelical Christians are the principal face of hostility toward the LGBTQ community. Many traditional religious Americans think the LGBTQ community ultimately wants to destroy their institutions, take their tax-exempt status, or at the very least to confine them to keeping these kinds of convictions hidden or private. Is there a better way? Advocates say absolutely, and they've worked alongside Utah Congressman Chris Stewart, who introduced a new federal bill on December 6th. Lawyers say this potential grand bargain provides deeper protections to both LGBTQ Americans and religious believers than either side currently has under federal law. But more than legislation, the conversation you're about to hear reminds us that in a moment in which gridlock, division, and polarization are high, It can be invigorating to listen with an open mind and to learn from those with different points of view, including those who are perhaps laying the groundwork for a major public advance. Well, hi, Shirley. Hi, Tyler. Thanks for coming by. Nice to see you. Good morning. We're going to be having a conversation today about uh, Fairness for All, about your story a little bit um, in, in meeting and, and working together these last uh, at least couple of years. I just want to name up front, I think we have a variety of listeners that on this issue in particular uh, will be perhaps hearing from different angles, different lenses. Uh, we have a number of journalists who listen to the conversation and are, are here with us now. If you're listening as a journalist in a pluralistic setting, you're going to probably frame this one, one way. Uh, we have a number of people who are on the sort of conservative, theologically conservative, uh, religious right, sort of religious listeners as well, working at churches and schools and otherwise. And so we're going to try to bring a little bit of that, obviously, both together. And I wonder if you could just start by sharing a little bit about 
how you met up and how you decided to uh, collaborate on this initiative with the Christian College Orbit in mind and the priority of uh, wise legislation in mind. All right. Well, I'll go first. My name, again, is Tyler Deaton, and I'm the senior advisor at American Unity Fund, which is a national LGBTQ advocacy organization that primarily works with conservatives, with Republicans. And as an LGBTQ organization, we also take religious freedom very seriously. And so American Unity Fund, I'll call it probably AUF a lot in this conversation, um, we were founded by people who care about the human rights of everyone, whether that's sexual orientation or gender identity or religion. And so we have been working around the country and in D.C. for the last eight years. And sometime about three or four years ago, we started to talk with more religious conservative groups here in D.C. to see if we could find common ground, as I'm talking about, you know, expanding protections based on religion and sexuality. Who else is out there who shares that vision that we can all live in this country together? And what we were finding back in 2015, 2016, was that if you had an orthodox understanding of marriage, that you were going to run into conflict both with the government, uh, with new laws that were being promulgated by the Supreme Court. There was activity also in the Congress. And uh, we knew that we wanted to keep the ability to have Christian mission as we understood it from the scriptures. But also, we thought that there was an opportunity to change the narrative that Christians were only interested in themselves uh, and what they wanted to believe and not actually care about their neighbor, our LGBTQ neighbors in particular. Surely, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. You know, how big is it? Uh, what kinds of schools does it connect with? I understand Tyler went to one of those schools. Uh, yeah. 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 So uh, Christian colleges and universities, we have about 180 around the world, 140 in the U.S. We serve about 550,000 students a year. We are institutions that take the Bible seriously. We um, have Christian, all Christian faculty. We are uh, able to disciple students, and we want to do that so that they act for the common good, often at a cost to themselves, but out of a love for Jesus Christ, and also uh, serve the common good. And so here we are. Uh, ourselves as an association with the opportunity to perhaps serve the common good by being thought leaders on what is, I think we all agree, we, it's just a highly contentious problem. We we see the, the uh, tensions between LGBTQ individuals and the church in organizations with religious mission. How do you sort of hold to things that are very important to you? And in up until this time, it really has been people staying in their corners. And what's so unique and what has been so great about working with American Unity Fund is that we have found common ground with them. They uh, they want LGBTQ civil rights, and they are endorsers for religious mission. And we need to have our religious mission respected, accepted, protected, and we want the well-being of LGBTQ individuals in the, our American society. Mm-hmm. And Tyler, can you say a little bit about why you chose to collaborate with Shirley and the CCCU and get involved in this, including, you know, your own. Your yeah. Own and and I think that some of this is Shirley was mentioning that everybody does see the tension. Like, it's obvious there is a, a cultural conflict that's ongoing among and between LGBTQ people and religious conservatives. But I think what people don't see is all of the common ground. Like, we just start to obsess over a few stories of conflict that are real and forget that everybody needs a good job. 
everybody wants to have a safe and warm home in the winter. And every LGBT person I've met and every religious conservative person that I met wants that for each other. So I grew up in an evangelical family down in the South. I actually grew up in Alabama in a it's a smaller denomination that probably people have heard of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And I just had a great experience growing up. But I knew from a very, very young age that I was gay. I mean, I and I distinctly remember even as a four-year-old having a crush on the pastor's son. And so it was something that even, you know, while going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and then Bible study on another evening and growing up, you know, loving the church, I had that complexity already going on in the back of my mind. So I went to Wheaton College. I met my husband there our freshman year actually on a college Republicans deployment for George W. Bush's reelection in 2004. And right, this is a very unlikely setting that I'm at one of the most conservative Christian schools in the country on a college Republicans mission. But I met my my husband there and now we've been together for 15 years. So I think that it was tough being at, at such a conservative school and being gay. And I think my hope for the future is that as a society, we're left free to sort this out on our own in the religious space, that the government doesn't try to come into the religious space and try to solve whatever problems it thinks that it can as government. I just don't think that that's government's role. I do think government's role is to make sure that in the public square, outside of those private spaces, outside of religious spaces, outside of anything that is private, that we all should be able to come to the public square equally and freely and bring our religion, bring our sexuality and Finding that common ground, I think, is actually really easy. Once you decide you want to find the common ground, it's then hard to figure out, okay, well, what should federal legislation look like that would model these ideals that we're talking about that start to sound easy in principle? They're harder to legislate. But in this coalition, which includes a lot of other religious voices, a lot of other really – and I'm not a a lawyer, but it includes a lot of other very smart LGBT progressive lawyers who've come together and written – legislation that we believe embodies these principles. And, you know, Josh, what's so interesting is that my story overlaps in the sense that I was a vice president for student life at a Christian college for 15 years. And in 1999, when I started in that role, what we noticed even then was that there were these uh, suicide-type gestures that were happening on campus. And so um, without, of course, divulging any confidential information. And I had come uh, from being in New Haven, Connecticut, where I was an attorney. I knew that the LGBTQ issues were becoming more and more prominent, more visible. And so I asked the director of our counseling center at this Christian college, I said, how many of those seven situations have to do with sexual identity? And she said, four. And I said, I don't want anyone to lose their faith or die on my watch on this issue. We don't have to do that. And so it was at that time that we started to think about how do we teach about human sexuality in a way that honors a conservative, biblical, historic understanding of men and women and uh, marriage and how we relate to one another, but also how do we care well for our LGBTQ students who are feeling invisible and obviously lonely, depressed. Mm -hmm. 
So just to set the table for the, the larger conversation then, you, you got into this a bit and uh, said, I want to come across the line and find uh, some kind of a compromise or a middle ground, or maybe it's better than that. It's a modus vivendi. It's something positive still uh, that we can all live with together. And yet there were a number of, of detractors along the way who weren't so positive on that. I understand at least several schools, Cedarville and Oklahoma and others, have, have chosen to leave the CCCU because they didn't believe it was it was working as well and that there were a number of groups, you know, that signed uh, a letter, D.A. Carson, Jim Daly, Russell, Russ Reno, uh, Dr. Moore, uh, Al Mohler, others, you know, sort of saying we, we can't stand for any legislation that protects sexual orientation. And so uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about the process um, in the CCCU. How have you negotiated with some of the schools who want still to teach traditional biblical morality around men and women? And how have you navigated some of the, the pushback? So, as I mentioned, Josh, has been a four-year process. And so, as an association representing Christian colleges and universities around the world, in particular in the U.S. government setting, we needed to say, how are we going to deal with a real challenge? So, we are a solution-oriented approach, but always infused with a faith perspective because that's who we represent. So, first of all, we, we went to our membership and said, uh, do we all see the problem? There's uh, problems with accreditation. We had one institution that, because of their traditional understanding of marriage, was placed under a cloud for their accreditation. In California, we saw that California picked up what they called the shame list for schools that got legal exemptions under Title IX, which were perfectly uh, legitimate and called for, and they were not going to let $9,000 a student go to Christian colleges and universities that had gotten a legal exemption. So this wasn't—we had real problems. So um, as an association, we started to hold regional meetings, and we presented those regional meetings. We worked with AUF on that. We said, what would it look like for uh, Christian colleges and universities to find a a solution-based approach? Because here's our worldview. Our worldview is 60% of the American public already live under what we call SOGI, sexual orientation, gender identity laws. They already live under them. That, we what, are, 20, 21 states? How, how large is that? Yeah, again? it's well, it's 20 states with comprehensive protections and then a few more that have partial protections. Okay. Okay. So this already exists. So we, um, this legislation doesn't create a whole new set of laws. We are just actually acknowledging a reality. And that reality, then we said, how is that going to pair up with the ability to hire for mission to sort of exercise that? So we went to our presidents and said, let's talk about the problem. And it's it's actually it's a reality that at some point it's more risky to ignore. And I think that that's my response. You know, I I have enough of an experience in the evangelical space that I I listen to Al Mohler's broadcasts and I read what Dr. Moore writes and I respect a lot of it. And I think on this, it is important to remember that it is over half the country living under LGBT protections, and the sky has not fallen, and all of the parade of terribles has not happened. There is another factor in all of this that we have to acknowledge, which is that there's federal legislation that's already been proposed um, that has already passed the House of Representatives, and it's called the Equality Act. And so it happened in 2017. Oh, it just passed earlier this year. It, in fact, it was the House Bill Five. It was in the top ten of Speaker Pelosi's priority list, and they sent it straight to the floor early in the spring. And it had three Republican co-sponsors and eight Republican votes when it finally passed on the House floor. And so 
these issues are moving. And so I don't think that it's an option to just sit it out or to say no. I think that conservatives and Republican elected officials are going to have to find something that they can be for. And I think that that's what this keeps coming back to is, well, then what can you be for? We've developed a policy that people of conscience across the political spectrum, gay or straight, transgender or not, Christian or atheist, can find in fairness for all protections for everyone. And that's something that I think is an improvement on the Equality Act. And it's certainly an improvement on having nothing. Yes, well, it strikes fact, me that the that idea, excuse me, is is a is a conservative idea to work from what is actual, uh, and then to shape legislation and, and and rules that navigate that actuality um, accordingly. A Burkean concept and the idea of, of, sort of I, yeah, I agree with that. What's happening on the local level first, and then putting it into play. And so I hear that a lot. I'm curious as to whether you you see any. Any local examples that are exemplary that have sort of been codified more broadly? I remember the story of Barry Corey and others who sort of experienced some. Absolutely. It, so um, when you run into what is just a human problem, and think about it, Josh, we live in America where we actually have a, a working democratic system. I know there's we, people can criticize it, but actually you can go and talk to your legislature. You, a legislator, you can actually propose a bill. You can uh, say, look, if the Equality Act is not going to be good in the long run for these kinds of institutions, what would you propose? And it's so Barry Corey and uh, John Wallace and Bob Brower, th- uh, three leading CCCU presidents, went to Sacramento when we had the California problem where they were going to cut off literally millions of dollars of student aid to to students who wanted to go to Christian colleges. And they got to know their legislators. And they uh, said, hey, could we help you understand who we are? I know you've got sort of a negative view of it. Come on to campus. Uh, leading legislators from Sacramento came to the campuses, talked with students, and got a really a three-dimensional views of, of what was happening. So that was a really good example. And of course, I think we know about the Utah legislation uh, that is working very well. Uh, there where they they paired up what LGBT people needed, what religious groups needed, and they they found some social stability. Yeah, and it's been a huge success. The Utah law that Shirley's referencing was passed in 2015, and it protects gay and transgender Utahns in employment and housing, and it protects people of all religions in the workplace as well, and it protects religious institutions from being implicated in ways that would jeopardize their conscience by the employment and housing laws. And it's just been this huge success. I mean, today in 2019, having passed that law, having had church leaders and LGBT leaders in Utah standing together to celebrate the passage of that law, now four years later, the the law is wildly popular. And if you poll people in Utah and ask them, do they support LGBT non-discrimination, you actually have them tied with Vermont for the second highest level of LGBT non-discrimination support in the country, second only to New Hampshire. And so there's a there's a lesson there that, okay, not only did LGBT people get protected, not only did religious people get protected, they all believe they got protected because there was a cultural and reconciliation project that took place along with the passage of the law. And so now it's nothing, right? It's like, it's a non-issue. We've essentially neutralized the issue of LGBT and religious discrimination in Utah, such that now people all feel comfortable because they all feel like everybody won. 
And that's the approach that we're advocating. That's the solution, which is that I firmly believe sexual orientation and gender identity protections are coming nationwide. They will be passed by Congress at some point very soon. It's just a matter of time. Just think about if you were an LGBTQ person and you heard different groups say, no SOGI anytime, anywhere, meaning we are not going to listen to what you might need in a civic pluralism such as America. I think you would be afraid. And I think that if you're a religious person and you constantly see laws that say you can't have exemptions for religious purposes, you can't have a tax-exempt status, you become afraid. Mm -hmm. So when you have two groups that are afraid, that is actually not a milieu for good living and well-being. And so what we said is, what we, we actually were at a meeting at Yale Law School, and uh, one of our good friends, uh, law professor Robin Fretwell Wilson, uh, Bill Estridge, two leading legal scholars, put together a group of people who said, what if you came around, talked about what mattered most to you and what you were concerned about? And both the LGBTQ groups and the religious groups said, we're afraid of being extinguished. And it was, and in some ways, it was a, a threat to to your very core, like, I can't exist here. And we said, well, what could we do? Because we don't want to get rid of the thickness of religious practice, all the charitable things, you know, all the good works that happen, all the relief, all of that stuff that happens because people are motivated by their faith. And we don't want to have LGBTQ people extinguished. We want them to live well, to have a full and meaningful life. So why isn't this possible in the United States? And, and when you hear an LGBT person say to me, I want your well-being, I know that actually you're going to believe differently than I do, and I don't like that, but I want your well-being. And I want to say to that person, that LGBTQ person, I know that we don't always agree, but I want your well-being. It seems to me in the context of Christian colleges and traditions that I think all three of us grew up in, there often isn't the step of differentiating your morality when it comes to the public square. You think in terms of I'm part of a hegemonic privileged majority. I believe these values are good for our kids. I'm concerned about the public schools and what they're teaching our kids. And therefore, I want the, the morality that I, I believe to be uh, godly, biblical. Uh, there's my answer. Uh, as opposed to saying, uh, no, 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 there's a, a middle ground. And maybe taking a lesson from the playbook of religious minorities in the country. I, I was talking with a journalist just yesterday who was describing how you know, the experience of Orthodox Jews sociologically and psychologically or uh, Mormons or Seventh-day Adventists or others brings a different kind of listening and expectation to this conversation. I wonder how sort of the, the sort of psychology of where groups are coming from and where voters are coming from affects this conversation. Yeah, well, and, and I would even add to that list in the, a group that's facing tremendous amounts of discrimination today, which is the American Muslim community. And all religion is not fully adequately protected in the U.S. Civil Rights Act. That's one of the problems that Fairness for All would also solve. It would be the biggest expansion of religious civil rights since 1964. For all faiths. That's for all faiths. And I'm glad you brought this up just because I, I think Christians celebrate the fact that we support those minority rights for minority religions in employment, in housing, in public accommodations without agreeing with them. And we don't have to. Like, we're not saying by by protecting a person's employment status, we're not condoning their religion, right? Like, putting religion as a civil right into federal law was not an endorsement of Islam. 
or Judaism or Christianity, by the way. It wasn't an endorsement of any single religion. It was an endorsement of the idea that people should be free to follow their faith or no faith. And that's what we're talking about with sexual orientation and gender identity. I hope that helps people start to kind of wrap their minds around what we're asking for is we're not asking for anyone to endorse being gay or being in a same-sex marriage or being transgender. That's not actually required at all to support sexual orientation and gender identity non-discrimination. All that's needed is to ascribe to this basic principle that even if you think it's wrong and even if you think it's a sin, should they lose their job over it? Should they be evicted from their home over it? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was interesting to hear this same journalist talking about how conservative Muslims are actually reading Benop, uh, Rod Dreher, right now because their experience is, is so similar. But what about the question, if fairness for all is passed this time around, and if those on the religious traditional side say, okay, we'll compromise, we'll get a grand bargain of sorts, what's to say that that won't change in two years or in five years or down the road that the whole the whole argument will be watershed loss. Right. So um, if you believe it's it's a worldview issue, if you believe that the people that you're dealing with um, are not trustworthy, um, that they're not entering into this bargain in good faith or that the legislators remember it is the deciders in Congress that are going to make this decision. So uh, we have lots and lots of precedent where there have been negotiated results, and that's what I call it. I call it negotiated results. Um, compromise, unfortunately, has gotten sort of a, a tainted sense to it. But when you sit down and get a negotiated result where people like a lot of things, maybe don't like everything, it has staying power. In fact, there's uh, there's only one small example where uh, that didn't happen. So, look, there are no guarantees. It's not going to change in two years. People have put a lot of effort in, and people, when they get a settled, negotiated result, like it. Talk to us a little bit about where Fairness for All uh, sits now. It's been introduced by Chris Stewart of Utah last Friday. At this point, do you expect this to be sort of opening the the conversation in a longer-term play, or is it a short-term play? Well, I, I'm going to let uh, Tyler give a, a lot of different specifics, but I want to give sort of an overview. So here's what it does. Um, it grants protections. So it grants protections for religious, lots of religious groups. So, for instance, Jack Phillips, the baker, who has been in the news and uh, his case, you know, gets really, it's a ping pong ball. That would he would get certainty because he is a business of under 15 people. So that's like a nice protection. Christian colleges and universities would be exempt from the law. Um, We would be really clear about counseling and other areas where a licensure is taken up, a tax-exempt status. So there are protections, and then there are also expansions. And the expansion part is where if I'm a religious person and I want to you know, decorate my cubicle with calendars and religious sayings and maybe a cross, I will not be discriminated in my workplace for doing so. And likewise, for an LGBTQ person, if they wanted to uh, go to a pride parade on their weekend, they would not be able to come back and get fired for that. So expansions and protections. And some of those expansions people might disagree with, but we think that those have been negotiated well, and we think the protections have been negotiated well. And it's really key to remember differences are not erased. 
I think a lot of people want to have, think about this as sort of a, a big slurry where the differences get erased. Instead, it's identifying common ground and identifying differences and saying we're going to live with those. Yeah, the bill right now, Fairness for All, would represent, as I mentioned earlier, the biggest expansion of religious civil rights since 1964. It is the first ever federal protection for LGBT people um, who right now have a patchwork of protections that just don't work in our modern life. You know, if you are working for a company in Chicago and you're transferred to Indianapolis, you lose your protections. If I work in D.C., but I commute home to Virginia, I lose my protections. And that's just not sustainable. So the bill corrects that. And then I think in some of what Shirley's talking about, it's creating one of, I'm not going to say it's the biggest codification of speech and expression rights, but it has got to be up there. And it's the biggest codification of First Amendment rights that Congress will have taken in a long time. And those speech and protection rights are for everyone. It's viewpoint neutral. And it's it's something that I think in this bill is a real feature that if you're a libertarian, if you're a conservative, if you're a progressive, again, any religion or none, sexuality, whatever, you're protected in the workplace. You're protected in the public square. Your government job is protected. Your private sector job is protected. And we do all of this while leaving the religious sector untouched. And so I think that this is where it's like maybe at least a good moment to remark on like religion itself is changing. And I think that that change should happen on its own again without the government interfering. But lots of Christian movements and lots of Christian denominations are affirming of LGBT people theologically. But you don't have to be to support fairness for all. We've written it such that anyone from any background and anyone with any theological belief can come to this. And it really narrows the question to just these core principles of can you fully participate in public life? This is not about marriage. It's not about your underlying views on sexuality. And that's clarifying. I think that it's a real breakthrough moment in the debate to have LGBT people and religious conservatives finally working together. And that's probably the biggest thing about this is not the words in the bill, but who's behind it and the cultural moment that it's sparking and where that can take us is, I think, unlimited. And I think it can certainly take us at least to passage of a federal law. And it doesn't limit the First Amendment. So people have said, well, if you if you codify something like this, if you actually make explicit things that you hold dear, it somehow limits the the court, uh, the courts or any uh, other entity that has to regulate this space. But it doesn't. But what it does do is it says the things that matter to people and it puts it in writing and it gives people predictability. So I don't want the tax exempt status for faith-based nonprofits to go away because I think they do a lot of good. And my LGBTQ neighbors say so too. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and LGBT groups used to have their tax-exempt status taken away from them. Right. I mean, this was a big fight in our history. And I think this is where we actually start to see the common ground is that the First Amendment is a bulwark for every view and especially for views that are unpopular. Hmm. And that's why Fairness for All expands those protections and makes sure that your free speech rights stick with you mm -hmm. as you go throughout life. 
Hmm. So, so if there's going to be potentially a Title VII case coming before the Supreme Court uh, this coming year, yes. uh, and you know, if a lot of people say these are sort of issues working their way through the courts, why not this sort of uh, strategy instead of legislative compromise being articulated into law, uh, letting the courts uh, handle it or navigate it? What was the thinking there strategy-wise? That's a major looming factor. The Supreme Court has taken up a trio of employment discrimination cases, uh, two having to do with sexual orientation and one having to do with gender identity. And the question before the Supreme Court is, does the Civil Rights Act currently protect the LGBT community in its protections based on sex? And so essentially, is sexual orientation discrimination part of sex discrimination or the same with gender identity? We're going to have to see what the Supreme Court decides. I think that nothing is going to be legislated before the Supreme Court decision comes down. But regardless of what that decision is, there will still be legislation. It actually just doesn't matter what they decide. Congress still has to act. And that's why we want to get this solution out there now so that people can be thinking, okay, well, what are we going to do? Depending on your viewpoint, Supreme Court decision could be a win. It could be a loss. It just still doesn't matter who you are. Congress is still going to take up this issue in the spring. And I think uh, this would be an observation I would make. I think that the LGBTQ community has uh, been very effective in getting their message out. I think that they have made a good case for equality. And I think that the religious uh, sector in America has not been able to make that kind of case. I think that's uh, because you come from maybe a, a formerly privileged place where you think, well, this is the way it's always going to be. But I don't want to have religion, which is so meaningful to me. It is the central aspect of my life, my faith in Jesus Christ. I don't want that to be thought of as a bigoted sort of beliefs because it is really the hope that I have for the goodness of the world, for the well-being of the world. I don't have to foist that on other people, but I want to live that freely and without penalty. And I believe that when you can put into writing by the government that these kinds of things are valuable, we actually help the culture sort of moderate. And I think that Christians should be out front saying, we don't want LGBTQ discriminated against. Uh, so it is actually, um, I'll always say this, I think God gives people redo loops. And how, how did you do before? And um, if there have been, and there are strident LGBTQ people out there, uh, they have a redo loop. They can say, you know, my religious neighbor isn't my enemy. And I think that religious people can say, my LGBTQ neighbor isn't my enemy. And um, uh, if you've got cases in front of the Supreme Court, people, real people asking for relief, you can't ignore that. Those are my neighbors. They have a question. They would like relief. And we've got a governmental system that can give it to them. I want to be at the table helping shape that answer. Yeah, because let's be blunt. If if we believe that there's a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, they're likely to decide that the existing Civil Rights Act should be narrowly interpreted, which means that LGBT people aren't protected. That's going to be hurtful for gay and transgender Americans to hear. Um, just to hear it again, you know, it's, it's sort of just like a slap in the face that you can, in fact, be fired just because of who you are in about half the country. Even if it's a technical question in front of the Supreme exactly. Court. Exactly. The technical question is, may they change a law promulgated by Congress? And 
Actually, they should send it back to Congress to change the law. And Fairness for All actually starts that conversation right now about how to balance important American values. Yeah. What about on the LGBT rights side, you know, the suggestion that maybe it's better not to yield an inch actually on this debate, that in fact, uh, what's, what's the upside? What's the upside for you in, in so doing uh, yeah. when the direction in the last 10 years has moved as swiftly as it has? Yeah, there's definitely two immediate factors, one being the Supreme Court decision we're discussing, because a lot of LGBTQ groups are hopeful that the Supreme Court will decide the Civil Rights Act should be broadly interpreted. And even after that, you would still need federal legislation, but that would be a win that a lot of progressive LGBTQ groups have been working on for quite some time. The second factor is Congress is gridlocked. We have divided government, and the Democrats have been willing to pass the Equality Act in the House. And so if you talk to a lot of LGBTQ groups, um, they just say, wait for the Senate to flip. And then we'll be able to pass it in both chambers. And, of course, that's not the entire answer. The Senate is, even if it were to flip, the Senate is still likely to have at least uh, more than 40 Republican senators. And so this legislation is absolutely going to be subjected to the filibuster by some some senator won't let this go with a simple majority. And so we have to be building a broad bipartisan coalition under either party control in the Senate. And if we're going to have, and I look at this again, this is just looking at it kind of from political strategy. If you're going to want to pass that bill under a Democratic leader, who are the 8, 9, 10, 11 Senate Republicans you're going to be working with? And right now, one Republican has been willing to co-sponsor the Equality Act in the Senate. That's Susan Collins. There, there needs to be a much bigger conversation happening for the Equality Act to be viable in the Senate. I think that that's where the Fairness for All Act comes in. It's much more viable because it's viable with the party that has majority control. And we don't know what elections in the future will hold. Um, it's quite likely that the Senate stays Republican going into 2021. In fact, I think it's quite likely that the Senate could stay Republican for the next decade. And so if that's the case... Um, I don't want that to mean that we can't move forward with this solution. That means we've got to be working that much harder with Senate Republicans and with House Republicans to make sure that the support is there, that eventually, you know, a, a dream that I have is that Republican leaders in the Senate would be so bold as to put this on the floor themselves and really move forward on a solution. I know that Republicans have it in them. Um, Republicans are leading this way on criminal justice reform right now. Um, at times, Republicans have led on immigration reform. And so it's it's actually not impossible. And for a whole host of reasons, it would really be quite beneficial for Republicans to start to lead on LGBT freedom rather than just pretending the issue is going to go away. The issue is not going away. The approach to have uh, sort of flipping now from sausage making uh, to the sort of grassroots community and to the religious community, you know, it's interesting to have. Uh, a, a real effort to trying to, to lead this conversation um, at the level of Christian colleges and working with people like, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention and and, and others. I understand, uh, Shirley, that you, in facing some pushback and conversation within the CCCU, gathered at least some bit of a group to 
sort of hear the best of the other side. Yes, we uh, did. Ryan Anderson, Greg Baylor, and people, you know, like 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 that, uh, Dr. Moore. You know, can you tell us about that? Why would you choose mm-hmm. to do that? Uh, what did that actually end up doing for other Christian college presidents and your board and others? Yeah, why is that useful? Yeah. All right. So Christian colleges and universities, for what purpose? To be thought leaders, because we believe that you can pick up all of the rocks, look underneath them, and uh, really evaluate the arguments. And we were very grateful for the the individuals who came, gave us their best arguments on on uh, what way to go in approaching this conflict between LGBT civil rights and really the religious mission that people wanted to hold to. And uh, we also talked to individuals that said, here's what we think the law is. So it was a really fair open, honest discussion. And I have to say, even though a number of groups are on the opposite side, or we are conducting our dialogue in a very civil way, thoughtful way, um, because we want to actually model that, and we hope that can continue. So when we heard the arguments, the uh, the board said, you know what, we need to explore a legislative strategy. Lots of religious uh, mission organizations, the CCCU being one of them, they work with the agencies. We work with the Department of Ed. We, we do a lot of that almost every every week. Uh, we work with, uh, we file amicus briefs uh, so that we can support legislation. That's before the court. And we also say we work with the senators and representatives on actual legislation. It's a three-part strategy. That's what our board decided to do, to explore and that exploration, we just unpacked it. We looked at the realities. We we wanted to find out if there were LGBTQ people who were even interested in supporting religious liberty, religious freedom, and and and, and they were looking at us. Are there really religious people who want LGBT freedom? <laughs> you know, so people became three dimensional, Josh, and uh, friendships developed, and there was trust that emerged. And this is what we think is actually a possibility for the America that we love. And remember, for Christian colleges and universities, we know students. We have LGBTQ students on our campuses. They become dear to us as students and then as alumni. And so this is not about people we don't know. These are people we care deeply about, their families we care deeply about. And so that's why we're motivated on this issue. It's interesting, I really think, you know, one of the points of departure for this project is the the gap that exists between uh, journalists and religion, um, often not crossing over, coming to the middle. You know, with Christian colleges, if there are in the country 80 or 85 million evangelicals, even with the falling numbers of the younger evangelicals, that's a big part of the country, right? That's a big constituency that a lot of Republican senators and others are you know, interacting with, um, accountable to. And, you know, especially at those colleges, you have sort of largely evangelical theologically conservative faculty and families who are trying to prepare their students to engage the pluralistic world. It is right at the at the crosshairs. Uh, and yet, it just seems like if that community as a group, partly due to your leadership, can make headway here, uh, there may be more political traction down the road. But until that happens, it's hard to see where it where it ultimately goes. I just wonder if there are any other stories from the last several years of of working with people connected to the, the campuses or on the on the ground uh, that were surprising and and hopeful. Going back to the we don't want people to lose their faith or to lose their life. I mean if your faith isn't relevant, if your faith can't actually apply to the things that matter, we have seen 
especially in California, of course, where there was a sense of understanding uh, between Sacramento and our campuses. Uh, Our campuses pick up immigration, and we look at immigration from a number of different perspectives. And in fact, there's a national testing that would say that Christian colleges actually can look at more diverse set of opinions than non-religious colleges because we we believe that every question can... uh, Bring us to truth, uh, and and as we explore that together, so uh, the level of engagement has really increased because we have been exploring such an important issue. All right, so Shirley, it seems to me you have some real diversity of opinion and some real diversity of kinds of schools in the broader CCCU. How have you thought about the reality of pluralism in that context? Yeah, it, I, I just love my job because um, I have a school that has 199 students, and I have a, student, a school that has almost 20,000 students, some that have medical schools and law schools, and some who are just raising up that next generation of particular types of uh, majors and minors. And Everybody's got an assignment, and our association supports people in their assignment. uh, Not everybody of the uh, U.S. schools loves fairness for all as a strategy, Uh, and we don't require it as a litmus test. What we do uh, want uh, to say is, is it important for an association representing you in government to be at the table? And people believe we should be in the conversation. They may or may not love uh, the fairness for all strategy, but they do trust us to keep them informed, and they trust us to give them good advice. And we give advice based on the institutional context, and we respect them, love them, um, and we say institution first. It's interesting how that follows the idea of of political yeah. liberty, of liberty right. being given, religious liberty, before somebody would make any faith profession and uh, before somebody would ever get on board with a piece of a strategy legislatively. Yeah, think about it. If we can't actually model pluralism in an association, how would we actually expect this idea of living with difference on a national scale to work? Our presidents are so respectful and generous to each other that even in a room where we have maybe 100 presidents show up for a meeting, there's going to be, you know, 15 to 20 that say, I disagree with you, 15 and 20 over here. But we are going in the same direction in terms of raising up young women, uh, young men and women for Jesus Christ in the public square. All right. So, Tyler, where do you see things going from here? Timing-wise, this piece of legislation has been introduced, ENDA, SOGI laws, and Title VII, yeah. all kinds of things. What's, what's, what's next? Right. Well, this is, I guess, where I reveal that I am a registered lobbyist. And I'm going to say something that's, that's really going to shock the listeners, which is that sometimes political parties exploit issues for partisan gain. And right now, our biggest hurdle is that historically— Republicans have not built up their credibility that they're truly going to stand with and for the LGBTQ community. And so we have some work cut out for us um, because the people who are largely leading this in Congress are Republicans um, who want to bridge the divide. And the people who have been historically standing for the LGBTQ community have been on the Democratic side. And again, as we've mentioned, they have a bill. So there's going to have to be a real meeting of the minds. And some of these moments are already baked in. A Supreme Court decision is going to come down, elections next November. But over time, the partisan posturing doesn't work so well as movements like these start to take hold. And this bill just came out to the public for the very first time. And we have a lot of evidence that shows that this is a solution that Americans want. They want everyone to be protected. Americans, by and large, don't buy into this extremist notion from either direction that everybody's liberty comes at the expense of everyone else. 
Um, that's not really what Americans believe. And so those talking points from the far right and the far left eventually fall flat, especially as people, you know, they hear that. And I think they're probably a little bit like my mom, who I mentioned, I grew up very conservative evangelical family. When I came out, that was not the news that she was looking for. I think it might have been news she was expecting. But then over time, we're a family. We worked it out. I don't think that they necessarily agree with every choice that I make in my life, aside from my marriage, right? Like, this is just what happens in families. And I think that that's what's starting to happen at the national scale is that conservative Christian families have gay people in their families. And gay people come from conservative Christian places. And so we actually all know each other much better than maybe the media lets on at times, that everything is far more complex, far more close, and that we have much more in common. It's exciting because this is a bill that reflects that complexity of American life. And I think it's a distinctly American solution to um, something that we can solve very soon if we if we put ourselves and, and all of our energy into it. In the four years that I've been working on this, I have so come to love and respect in a much deeper way our form of government. I know there's always like lots of news stories about its dysfunction, but what I really love as an American who can work on things that matter to me deeply is that we have a system that allows us to have this conversation. And I'm so proud to be an American. I'm proud to be part of a system that tries to do the best for all their citizens. Well, at a highly polarized moment, that's a very hopeful note to end on. Uh, thank you so much, Shirley and Tyler, for coming by, and we'll keep watching. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Josh. Faith Angle exists to connect leading journalists with cultural and religious leaders. Thanks for listening.